This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. We've all been there. It's 3 p.m. and you're sitting in a meeting room or on a Zoom call where the person presenting can't stop saying, like, um, you know, or another set of filler words. It can feel distracting, mind-numbing, and you might be wondering, did this person even prepare before this call? This scenario is common enough that you've likely been there yourself. Speaking in a public setting or having a difficult conversation can naturally result in more of these words pushing their way into the crevices of your sentences. Although it can be embarrassing or frustrating, these words are in fact a natural human reaction. In order to use them less, it's important to understand why they're in our vocabulary in the first place. Despite common belief, filler terms such as like that go in between words have been around for several centuries. Today, some experts are coming out in defense of these despised fillers. One of these people is sociolinguist Valerie Friedland. She argues that this style of speaking plays a specific purpose. To uh, help us with social signaling and to help us with communicating facts about our social identities and our experience in ways that language didn't previously. So things like like and literally used non-literally that we tend to really cringe about when we hear it in um, young people's speech, for example, both of those came along because they were meeting needs that were unmet previously in the language, particularly for the speakers that use them. Friedland is a professor of linguistics in the English department at the University of Nevada, Reno, and is an expert in American English and its variability across different regions of the U.S., She's also the author of the new book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. I'm a sociolinguist, which means I study the underlying principles and patterns of language, like a theoretical linguist, looking across all languages to see what they share and where they differ and what this means for how we process language and how we say sounds. But I'm particularly interested in the social angle of that. How do social facts about us change the way that we present ourselves through language and change the course of language over time? She points to the example of the word like, which in the quoted verb means to say. To say generally is a verbatim quote. So if I tell you what someone said, you can anticipate that that's pretty much replicating what they actually said. But to say... I was like, instead of I said, it indicates that maybe it's not even something you said, but how you were processing an event while it was happening or what you were thinking while it was happening. And so it gives us more flexibility in projecting thoughts, ideas, and processing over the verb to say. So as you can see, it actually met an unmet need, which the verb to say didn't offer. Across society, certain words such as like or um have gained a bad reputation because they convey that a person is unprepared, uncertain, or feeling anxious. This language also plays into a certain social stereotype, one where the person is loosely labeled as a basic valley girl. 
a lot of times we have these stereotypes about different types of speakers and the Valley Girl stereotype that was really pervaded in the general American imagination in the 1980s was led by Frank Zappa and his daughter Moon Unit, who had that song Valley Girl. I don't think most Americans at the time really knew about Valley Girls, but that song really projected them into the national consciousness. And of course, one of the features that they used really readily in that song was like, both quotative like and discourse particle like. And so I think that's when people started to notice it. And it's something called the recency illusion that once you hear something, you hear it seemingly everywhere. And I believe that's sort of what happened with like. It became something that we started to really notice in the speech around us once it was in our collective consciousness because of the song. And then the stereotype of Valley Girls with movies and popular culture really became prominent. And then it became something that Valley Girls did or people like them, which generally were young women. Friedland argues that like and other similar terms actually hold a deeper historical significance and are in the English language for a reason. And like, not as a quotative verb, which is fairly recent, but like as a discourse particle. So with the ones we hear just sort of scattered in at the beginning of sentences or in the middle of sentences, things such as like, I don't really know if I'm going to do that those kinds of likes, those actually have been in our language for centuries. Some of the earliest records we have of them date back to the 1700s, used in much the same way as we use them today. Similar to like, terms such as um or uh also play a very specific purpose. While the general public calls these filler words, Friedland says that in linguistic terms, they're referred to as discourse markers. Ah uh and um are actually filled pauses or hesitation markers, and they're substantively different than things like like and you know, or even discourse particles like well or so, because what they do is they seem to come as a flag for cognitive processing. And what they're basically telling us as a speaker and a listener is, hold on, I need a lot of neural activation for this. And so I'm going to pause for just a minute and come up with the more difficult, more abstract, less familiar, or less common term, or I'm going to construct a really fancy sentence syntactically, so it's going to take my brain a minute to do all that processing. And we find really interesting patterns when we look at how they're used. They're typically used before more difficult things. So when speakers are putting more effort into what they're saying by using complex, difficult words, by using larger sentences, that's when we find them to be more common. But what's the useful part of this? Shouldn't we try to speed up and be as efficient as possible? Or instead, try to replace these fillers with pauses of silence? The short answer is no. But before we get to that, it's necessary to point that these fillers shouldn't be overdone. It's definitely distracting and frustrating to the listener if there's several peppered into a conversation. It's more beneficial, on the other hand, if it's an occasional inclusion. The key is moderation. Okay, back to explaining why fillers like um or uh are better than a pause. It seems to flag to a listener some very, very, very important information. First, it flags that someone's taking a moment but still going to continue with their turn. If they pause silently, then it might be mistaken as a turn transition cue, which would mean that the speaker is done with their turn and the listener can jump in. But if I say uh or um, it signals to the listener not only that I need a minute and I'm not done, but also, interestingly enough, how long a delay to expect. 
So when I, uh, it means I'm going to come right back. It's a short delay. But when I use, um, we find that the pause that's after the, um, is slightly longer, meaning that someone needs more time to cognitively process. So it gives really interesting cues to a listener. And by working as a flag to a listener that the speaker is doing some really intellectually deep stuff, it also prepares the listener to do heftier cognitive processing on their end. And that actually serves to help them process new information more quickly. And here's the kicker. It helps them remember it better later. So ah uh and um are super useful that are speaking superpowers, but we dislike them so strongly, we actually don't even know that side of them. So the next time you're hard on yourself for all of those ums, so's, wells, or you knows, think about why you put them in there. Could you have switched out several with a pause or breath instead? Or reset your rhythm with a sip of water? Or did these terms help to create a much-needed break in your speech or conversation? The first step to improving your articulation is by becoming more cognizant of how you speak. To find out more about this topic and our guest, Valerie Friedland, visit viewpointsradio.org. Also, check out her book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English, now available in select bookstores and online. For more behind the scenes, search Viewpoints Radio on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This segment was written by our executive producer, Amira Zaveri. Studio production by Jason Dickey. I'm Marty Peterson. Coming up next week. I started getting help, like mental help, because I felt supported. Like I felt like, no, I can do this. There are good people in this world. We dive into some of the data and assistance programs that are helping to break the cycle of poverty. Then... This year in particular, in a lot of the eastern states in the United States, we saw a lot of that activity much earlier than we typically expect. The impact of shifting weather patterns. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. That's Viewpoints for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more about upcoming shows and find a library of past programs on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and more information about our guests at viewpointsradio.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Viewpoints. Viewpoints.